Hello and welcome to Dharma in the Desert, the official podcast of the Arizona Buddhist Temple. My name is Michael Tang, and I am the host of this podcast, and on this particular occasion, I'm actually going to be the speaker as well. So, today's topic is about some of my experiences in becoming a Jodo Shinshu monk, which is known in Jodo Shinshu as undergoing one's Tokudo ordination. So, basically, I'll just be sharing some of the different lessons that I took away from the experience. Um, anyways, I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. For more information about the Arizona Buddhist Temple, please check out our website at azbuddhisttemple.org. And uh, if there's any questions you have, please feel free to shoot us an email. Anyway, thanks again for listening. When I'm at the temple, I have to admit that most of the questions I get are usually pretty much the same from most of the college students or just first-timers that come and visit me. The questions are usually something like, is Buddha a god? Or what is the pure land? Or what do you believe? If they're not college students, sometimes they'll ask something like, how do you become a Buddhist? Or what do you do as a Buddhist? Those sorts of kind of, you know, simple questions, daily life questions. But another big question that I often get a lot is, how do you become a monk? Or why did you choose to become a monk? Or what are the steps to becoming a monk? And lately I've been getting that question a lot more. So I think as a result of that, I've been thinking a lot more about my experiences in in becoming ordained. And I don't really mean like the training process leading up to ordination. I mean the actual steps that you take when you're in Japan when you're undertaking the process of ordination, which for those of you that have like never heard of that before, is actually regarded as a tokudo ordination. Um, so that's kind of what I want to talk about today, is the tokudo ordination process. I just wanted to reflect on what it was like for me personally as an experience, but also some of the lessons that I took away from it. Because... It was about two years ago that I undertook this process and became a officially ordained monk at the lowest possible level, a tokudo monk. But again, I admit that even today I have very clear memories, very vivid memories of what this was like. And, uh, you know, I, I admit that it has fundamentally reshaped the way that I think about the way I as a person, as a minister, and um, more than that, just as a practitioner, So for those of you that have not really heard much about this process, the Tokudo experience is very much like a boot camp for monks. What I mean by that is, is that it is very regimented, very structured. Everything that you do is scheduled for you. Every single day looks kind of like this. You wake up at about 5.30 a.m., you clean your room in your assigned area. Um, At 6.30, your group meets to discuss everybody's health to make sure everyone is doing all right and uh, the requirements, the educational and practice requirements for the day. At 7 o'clock, there is a service, which usually involves chanting shoshinge, words of Shinran Shonen. At 8 o'clock a.m., there's a breakfast. From 9 to noon, there's a lecture. At noon, there's a short lunch. 
from one to four, there is either a lecture or liturgy, uh, liturgy practice, chanting practice, depending on what's, what's necessary for the day. At five o'clock, there's an evening service. At six o'clock, there's dinner. At seven, there's an additional bedtime service. And then from eight to 10, you have the option of chanting, practicing, reviewing your liturgy, or taking a bath. The bath is definitely a highlight of the entire experience, as I have to say. But um, oftentimes, you're so exhausted by the end of the day, you just fall asleep in a dead heap as soon as you conceivably can. And this process, of course, repeats itself again and again and again. And this goes on for 11 days. And this all cultivates in your reception of your homyo, your Buddhist name, as well as your being accepted into the ranks of the Jodo Shinshu community, the Jodo Shinshu tradition. It is officially becoming a, a monk at the lowest le possible level, the entry level. It is an incredible experience, I must admit, and there is a lot to talk about in terms of one's experience, so I'll probably narrow my discussion a little bit. What I really want to talk about today is mindfulness. I would say that if there is one thing that you take away from this experience, it's that you become much more self-aware of how all of your actions are coming across to others, how they're affecting others, how others' actions are affecting you. And it really tests your ability to gauge the kind of impact that your actions and other people's actions have on a small scale and as a result of that like on a larger scale as well That's kind of the one Two-sentence summary. I would say of what you take away from this tokudo experience So we know that mindfulness is of course one of the six paramitas It's one of the key ideas that Bodhisattvas would practice as a means to attain enlightenment in historical Buddhism. And while we don't practice mindfulness explicitly, there is not a specific mindfulness activity that you do, we of course think of mindfulness as a kind of self-reflection and attention to others that permeates everything that we do and is part of our day-to-day -day experience in the world. This is a practice that can be, have a profound benefit for our growth as individuals, um, but what I've learned is that it's much more difficult and there are a lot more things to pay attention to than I think I ever really appreciated prior to my undertaking this Tokudo experience. A lot of what makes Tokudo different is that you acclimate to other people and focus on your time with them and how you interact with them in, in a way that maybe you don't get the opportunity to do so in the regular world. So a little bit of context here. When you go to Tokudo, it's an 11-day process, as I said, that's highly regimented, but something to note is that you do not have access to any outside information, any outside technology, any outside news or entertainment, you check your phones, your laptops, everything at the door, and you do not have access to them or any friends or family for that 11 straight days. 
the only people that you interact with are the people in the Tokudo experience with you and of course your teachers who are guiding your every move along the way. Now this makes a lot of sense because, you know, this is a official ordination process and you're single-mindedly attempting to understand the teachings of Shinran Shonen, teachings of the Buddha, the history, the liturgy, you're trying to devote every hour of your day, every moment you have available to becoming a representative of Jodo Shinshu and living this life. And for 11 days, that's obviously nothing compared to a lifetime, but it is a drastic change because we're constantly distracted and being bombarded by things normally in our life. So there's a big dramatic shift where you're a little bit isolated. And beyond that, you're working almost exclusively with the people that you enter into this, this experience, this program with. So in my particular case, as an American, I was part of a group of nine Americans, or a Han, in which we would work exclusively together with one another. Now, there are also many different uh, Japanese-born individuals who were undergoing this process as well, like you know, 150 of them, something like that. But we Americans were all placed together so that we could have the opportunity for some English translation and assistance from teachers in ways that were not culturally based. The only person that spoke Japanese in our entire group was our Han leader, and the rest of us were as American as they come. And so it was a struggle in a lot of ways to just nail down some of the different cultural differences that we had to acclimate to and navigate some of the different pitfalls that Americans typically fall into when they're just thrust into new cultures. So that made it also a little bit more isolating and alienating than maybe a regular experience would be when some of the many cultural cues are going to be consistent. So you're with a single group of people. You're constantly working together, looking out for each other, helping each other, working on the etiquette together. And as this is going on, you're constantly under supervision as well. And you're under supervision from your teachers. Now, they're helping you along the way, right? They're helping with your chanting, with your etiquette. They're helping you observe every action throughout this entire process by commenting, critiquing, stopping, pausing, resetting. And this includes everything from the way you wear your clothes to the way you conduct yourself, not just in a service, but walking around in a building. This includes your mannerisms. It includes the way you speak, your tone of voice, the way you intonate certain syllables or the way you don't intonate, uh, intonate certain syllables or the way that you draw out uh, a word. It's the way that you raise your book, the way you put your book down, the way you stand up, the way you sit down, everything. And all of this is under constant supervision and discussion by the teachers who are trying to get you up to a passable level of representative. So every service that we conducted, for example, was just littered with these mistakes that we would have. And it wasn't that we didn't prepare. I felt like everybody tried to prepare in advance, but there are so many tiny little things that we could not do perfectly. 
right? It's the nature of things. You can't do things perfectly, but we were very far off from perfect. And whether it was the way that we took our books out or the way we bowed out of unison, for example, whether we led with the wrong foot or whether we closed the book too quickly or like I said, whether we in pronounced something incorrectly, every mistake, every indiscretion resulted in a pause and the instructors would stop the service, correct us, make us review and practice before we could proceed again. Or if it was really bad, we would start over. And again, for a lot of this chanting, remember, we have to memorize the entire chant, and the chants are 15, 20 minutes long, so if you screw up towards the end of it on your etiquette or chanting, you're starting over for a 15, 20-minute chant. So this is going on the entire time. And you can picture it, right? All these Americans sitting in this... sitting in this hondo, right? Buddhist statue, centralized in the center, liturgy books in our hands, black robes draped over us as we're trying to get through this chanting as best as we possibly can. And on the side here, you have these teachers who are monitoring our every action, pausing, stopping, correcting. And, you know, sometimes if it was really bad, they're trying to get the pitch right. You can see them banging on the organ on the side of the room, trying to get the tone right, the timing right, the pitch right, correcting us. And we're repeating these long swaths of ancient texts that we cannot translate exactly in the moment. So you're trying to express these in Japanese. It's really a complicated process, but very taxing in a lot of ways. And this, again, as this goes on for 11 days, the beginning of the experience was really kind of a daze. And many of the members I remember were a little rebellious and a little upset because it was a struggle to get these nuances correctly and to have people who care, admittedly, and are trying their best and you, you have affection for them. But again, it is very stressful when you are constantly being corrected and you are trying to get this thing right because you want to, but you can't do it. There's tons of stress in that experience and it causes people to kind of rebel and shut down a little bit. And so we experienced a good deal of this. You see, that's the chanting side of it. But the thing is, there are no real breaks at Tokudo either. And the difficulty is that even the way you eat is under supervision. But for me, the eating portion of it was when a lot of this sort of started to click for me and make more sense to me. The cause began to lead into the explanation a lot better at this point in time. So let me set the stage a bit. As a group, when you're in this process, you have to eat as a group. You set your table together as a han. All right? The food is prepared for you, but you set it in complete silence as a han. And you wait in the cafeteria, which is essentially like a barracks, silently until everybody has arrived into the dining room. All the Japanese um, participants as well as the Americans. We wait in silence, we eat. If anybody forgets something 
or is late folding their robes after their, uh, after their chanting or after, or after their liturgy practice, everybody waits. No one touches the food during this period of time. So it's a silent room filled with these black-robed monks, all hungrily looking at their food, as well as sort of angrily casting glances at people who happen to be a little bit late in this experience. And I admit our group was late a few times because we would forget like a nenju. Someone forgot a nenju, that was very embarrassing. Or um, basically because robes needed to be checked or we couldn't fold them fast enough or we were released late or we had to use the restroom, something along those lines. But again, we were late a few times and helped with this group and it's very embarrassing. But everyone sits there in complete silence and prepares for their meal, which is sitting in front of them. And it's a tremendous amount of great stuff. I tell you, it's, you know, curry sometimes, or it's like um, fresh fish that has been prepared right there, or it's a katsu spread. Um, sometimes it's a stew. Other times, you know, they'd actually bring an American food. I remember the, when we got rolls with like black coffee, it was a real boon for us. There's always a giant pot of rice that you have to calculate. And you have to eat everything, otherwise it's considered very much like a waste, so you can't go that far either. And so the food is delicious and simmering and smells wonderful, and you're sitting there in silence just dying to eat. And when everyone's finally there, the teachers at the very front put their hands together and they say, Itadakimasu! And we all say itadakimasu, and then we silently eat our food. And when you're done, we say gochisosamadeshita, and then the, we bust all the food. Nothing is wasted. It would be considered kind of, you know, motanai to do so, right? As you're doing this, you always get a chance to look at everybody and convey and connote everything that you need to explain while you're eating. If you don't like something on your plate, again, you can't waste it. It's got to go somewhere where someone else will eat it. So you can put it on a central plate and other people will take it and eat it. And I was kind of a plate cleaner. I'm a little bit of a pig in that regard and I'll eat anything. But you kind of learn to communicate with these nonverbal cues, sharing your food, determining what's good, what's what, what what's something we all want, what's something that we're not really fond of and we share it with the people next to us, so that's part of the process as well. So one afternoon, we were served a full, tiny mackerel, like a little fish for lunch. It had been lightly roasted in oil and it had been laid on a bed of rice. It looked wonderful, perfect, crisp, delicious, right? Lightly salted, just sort of brittle, the problem with it was that right off the bat, when you poke at it with your chopsticks, you can tell it is very, very bony. Like the brittle bones, the ones where if you poke them too much, they kind of shatter, right? And you have bones in your meat, and that's obviously not something anybody wants. Admittedly, I'm with a group of Americans. We've all eaten fish. But not all the food is something that we're great at eating in terms of using chopsticks or just in terms of what the proper etiquette to eat anything is. And this threw some of the members of my group off who didn't know how to eat it. I mean, you can't really pick it up and bite into the fish because you get bones in your mouth. Okay, So the only chance you have is to really pick the meat off the fish slowly, separate it out methodically before eating it. Kind of a laborious process for Americans who don't do that when they're eating fish for the most part. It's a different type of custom. Now this obviously made the process very difficult for all of us. 
not all everyone knows how to use chopsticks. So what inevitably happens is that many of my mem the members of my Han were, you know, double fisting their chopsticks and they're kind of stabbing at the fish. And they're like ripping it apart, using their fingers, using the hashi like a fork and a knife. You know, they're kind of cutting it in that kind of cowboyish sort of way. They're trying to rip the meat off of it. I mean, it's not everyone's fault. You don't know. These are not things that you learn. You don't simply wake up one day and understand how they work. We've never known any better. But this sort of thing, the way you're tearing this fish apart and using your chopsticks inappropriately, again, like I said, everything goes, nothing goes unnoticed in this sort of situation. So we finish our meal, we bust our table, but as we're doing so, the head of the center, the head minister, comes up to us and pulls us to his side. And he is this big guy. And I don't mean heavy, but like broad-shouldered, right? Thick, square-ish gentleman. Black, thick-rimmed glasses. Perfect head of hair. Black, combed to the side. He's wearing, of course, his robes, and he's very adroit as he does so. But very respectful, but stern. He walks over to us with this look on his face as he looks at our plates, the desecrated fish everywhere. And he calls us to sit down. First words we've heard in like an hour. A translator, of course, comes with him. And the tra he speaks in this sort of deep Japanese dialect, right? And the translator is nodding along, listening to what he has to say. And he looks at all of us, the translator, he says, I understand that in America, eating is more social and casual. I understand that many of you are not used to eating Japanese dishes, but you must understand that there's a kind of etiquette that you must follow when you eat. Kami-sensei looks at all of us as he says this, and we gaze around the table, and immediately there's this, like, sense of, terrible dread that overcomes all of us. We're being told we don't know how to eat like civilized people, basically. Kami-sensei proceeds to show us. He picks up the dish. He shows how you lift them with your left hand, one at a time, and carefully use the chopsticks to pick the meat off the bones of the fish before you eat it. And how you single my and how you use the single remaining piece of daikon when you're done, the, the radish, to wipe up all of the excess fish and rice from the um, plate to collect every single kernel of rice from the plate. And then you eat it like a chip. And we were looking at our plates and you see desecrated, smashed up fish everywhere with meat scattered all over the plate. You see like little kernels of rice stuck to everything. You see everything is messy and wasteful. We look at each other and we're thinking to ourselves, this is terribly embarrassing. We, we eat like savages. And we nod like, okay, we nod in agreement. We're sorry, we'll get it fixed. We assume that's it. It's an etiquette thing. Embarrassing, but something that could be corrected. But Kami-sensei is not done. He holds up his fish plate in his hand, carefully cradling it between his fingers, and he holds it for us to really look at it. And he says, this may, this may seem unimportant, but you have to understand that eating is something we must be grateful for. 
And he says to his interpreter, It is harsh to think of it like this, but when we consume another living thing, we take a life. In forms of in older forms of Buddhism, many believe that the end of our lives we are endlessly reborn again and again and again until we reach Buddhahood. And if you think about that, the animals that we eat in another life of constant rebirths may very well have been the brothers, sisters, the friends, the children, the lovers, the parents of ourselves or people we knew. It's impossible to know, but possibly someone or someone that was very close to us in another life. And the idea that we, it now gives its life to us today to nourish our bodies is an incredible gift and something that we will never be able to repay. And he says, this is why we say, itadakimasu. And why we close with, gochiso sama deshita. Kami goes on to say that, this is why we eat the way we do. The reason we do not waste a single grain of rice, the reason that we carefully, cleanly, considerately remove the flesh from the bone of the fish. The reason that with every single tiny bite, we should think about our actions, what they mean, and why we are allowed to continue the way that we do. And at this, he rises from his seat, and he puts his head and hands together, and he bows, and he thanks us for listening, and he leaves the rest of us, and we feel like idiots. It was a moment that was deeply embarrassing for me. The head of the training center has to take time to teach we savage Americans how to eat, how to not desecrate the bodies of living things that may at one time have been the people we care the most about. But I was glad it happened because that's when it kind of made sense. And not just the eating portion of it, but everything. It dawned on me that, as we cleaned up anyway, not that the culture was different, not that the customs were interesting or unique, not that Americans were foolish. It dawned on me that I spent an entire lifetime aware of this teaching and having never really given it the thought that it deserved. It occurred to me that this ignorance that I carry with me is my own, not the fault of the culture or the media or whatever, but the fact that I had never dug deep enough to think about this in such an extent. I know taking a life is wrong. I say itadakimasu when I eat. I close with gochisosamadeshita. I have friends who are vegetarians for this exact reason. I talk about these things all the time. I know that my life is built off of the conclusion of other lives. But we don't think about it 
and oftentimes we need to. Everything they tell you, strange as it may be, and this is coming from someone who usually rebels against the idea of like conformity and those sorts of things to something that we're not in agreement with, right? Everything that they do has a reason to it, though. The reason that you chant a certain way, the reason that you hold a book a certain way, the way you walk, the mechanisms of your steps, the angle of your elbows, the pitch of your voice, the movement of your arms as you walk, the way you carry your towels, the way you sit in chairs, the way you arc your back or the length of your hair, angle of your bow, the angle of your head as you bow, the speed of your bow, the confidence in which you bow or the lack of confidence and certainty with which you bow, I don't know. The parallelism of the ornaments on the altar, the hand with which you oshoko, the sitting, the way you bend your fingers around in a nenju, right? The hand in which your nenju rests. Each one of these is a teaching in mindfulness. And every single lesson is designed to make you more mindful of how your actions represent a history of teachings, a way of life, influence people around you in the present, and of course, our opportunities reflect on the teachings of Shakyamuni Buddha. As I think about this now, you know, in my day-to-day -day experience working in a temple, people sometimes wonder why we bow and we enter an onaijin or why we have to offer incense a specific way. They always say, well, is this right? Does it matter? It doesn't matter. I'm just doing it, right? But the truth of the matter is that in each of these details, there lies the opportunity of a lesson a moment that you can reflect and think about how this action is representative of something bigger or affects or is affected by something else. There's meaning everywhere, all the time. It seems arbitrary, but I came to understand that ritual is there to teach us the Dharma but it only means anything if we're willing to ask ourselves, why? Why are we doing this? Because Jodo Shinshu is not a practice in which we as people just follow a set of standards for our lives. It's not like that, right? It's a process. And this is a process in which we begin to better understand the way we live and that the way we live is an expression of not just the people that came before us and the causes and conditions that allow us to continue, but of Amida Buddha as well. Our lives are an expression of the Dharma. And so there are infinite lessons to take away at any point in time. And for me, this is the biggest lesson I took away from this Tokudo experiences. Our lives, the way we live them, are an expression of the Dharma. They help teach the Dharma. 
These lessons are all around us and it's our purpose to try and see them, to internalize them, to understand them. And then the only thing that's left to do is to keep on living. Thank you for listening.